That is life. That's beauty. The clouds, the, the universe, the birds, the four-leggeds, all living things which are relatives. But the white man sees that he has to manipulate and exploit all these things so that he can he can have pleasure, self-pleasure. It's, it's, it's complete selfishness. And so this is what that old man meant. And the hardest thing today is to be an Indian. Firewolf stands proud of his watches, but he never stays. The overwatcher, he could set it off, but he never say. Let it off, no safety when the light is sprayed. Firewolf, lighter on his feet than light of day. He never liked the stage, but he needs it. Only mics convey what the light can show. The lies of broad day, the thing that he needs to save. The whole world from near fade, from high waves and chase the great to highways. They face to face, along with concrete blocks and pipeways to poison lakes. It's safe to say, humans don't like the thing. Firewolf likes the dream. Firewolf dances with wolves, plus he likes to sing. Firewolf doesn't hate you, nature's melanin is telling me that Firewolf doesn't like to bite, but his bite stings. Doesn't want to fight, but he'll fight for the right things. Firewolf stands proud, doesn't stand up for the face, even if they resemble a pack member's face. Lateral violence threatens his race from extinction. Cops be anti-tribal because they don't make a distinction. Treating innocent mothers the same as killers at the station. Firewolf doesn't like to fight, he'll fight this crooked nation. He'd rather fight back than die from looking on his starvation. It's not in question, he's fighting for you, fighting for a sovereign nation. Firewolf, he's fighting for you. Firewolf stands proud of his watches, but he never stays. The overwatcher, he could set it off, but he never saves. Let it off, no safety when the light is sprayed. Firewolf, lighter on his feet than light of day. He never liked the stage, but he needs it. Only mics convey what the light can show. The lies of broad day, the thing that he needs to save. The whole world from near fate, from highways and chasing great to highways. They face to face, along with concrete floods and pipeways to poison lakes. It's safe to say, it's safe to say, it's safe to say, humans don't like the thing. It's so easy to go out and get a job and become concerned only with money. And then you start building fences around your house. Yeah. You start building fences around your cities. You start building fences around your states. You start building fences around your country. And all this time you're building only a fence around yourself. 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 Hey, now this is Doc. I'm just encouraging you to listen. I was adopted by a white missionary couple. I was adopted. Immediately placed for adoption. I was in foster care with um, one family for uh, 18 years. They were white. My parents loved us, and I understand that, but at the same time... They took the idea that um, they were saving me. Saving us. Um, from ourselves. Being saved and I should be grateful for the life that I've been given because any child on the reservation would give anything to live as I was living. They took us away from our mom. They came marching right in and literally took us and thousands of other children from their home. It's a way to er eradicate us and to go to a nation's children is one of the sure ways to do that. The U.S. has a long and brutal legacy of attempting to eradicate Native Americans. For centuries, they colonized Native American lands and murdered their populations. They forced them west and pushed them into small, confined patches of land. 
But Native Americans resisted. A Board of Indian Commissioners report said, instead of dying out under the light and contact of civilization, the Indian population is steadily increasing. And that was an obstacle to total American expansion. So the U.S. found a new solution to absorb and assimilate them. It all started with an experiment and a man named Richard Henry Pratt. He had in his charge some prisoners of war and he taught these men how to speak English, how to read and write, and how to do labor. He dressed them in military uniforms and basically ran an, an assimilation experiment. And then he took his results to the federal government and said they're capable of being civilized. So he was able to get this project funded. In 1879, the government funded Pratt's project, the first ever off-reservation boarding school for Native American children. His motto was to kill the Indian and save the man. What started there at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School was nothing short of genocide, disguised as American education. Children were forcibly taken from reservations and placed into the school, hundreds, even thousands of miles away from their families. They were stripped of their traditional clothing. Their hair was cut short. They were given new names and forbidden from speaking their native languages. To take our children and to indoctrinate them into Western society to take away their identity as indigenous peoples, their tribal identity. I think it's one of the most effective and insidious ways that the U.S. did do harm to, to, to indigenous peoples here because it targeted our children, our most vulnerable. And they tried to make us ashamed for being Indian and they tried to make us something other than Indian. There are also accounts of mental, physical, and sexual abuse, of forced manual labor, neglect, starvation, and death. My great-grandfather went to Carlisle, and nobody in my family ever talked about it. So if you Google Indian boarding schools, the majority of the pictures that you will see will be actually from Carlisle. Colonel Pratt created propaganda. He hired a photographer to create those before and after photos to show that his experiment was working. So it was, you know, intentional propaganda. And it worked. The Carlisle model of education swept the country and led to the creation of over 350 boarding schools to assimilate Native American children. On the one hand, we have the Navajo as we find him in the desert. Few of these boys and girls have ever seen a white man. Yet, through the agencies of the government, they are being rapidly brought from their state of comparative savagery and barbarism to one of civilization. In 1900, there were about 20,000 Native American children in these schools. By 1925, that number more than tripled. Families that refused to send their kids to these schools faced consequences like incarceration at Alcatraz or the withholding of food rations. Some parents who did lose their children to these schools even camped outside to be close to them. Many students ran away. Some found ways to hold on to their languages and cultures. Others, though, could no longer communicate with family members. And some never returned home at all. 
By stripping the children of their Native American identities, the U.S. government had found a way to disconnect them from their lands. And that was part of the U.S. strategy. During the same era in which thousands of children were sent away to boarding schools, a number of U.S. policies infringed on their tribal lands back home. In less than five decades, two-thirds of Native American lands had been taken away. The whole thing was purposeful. And the fact that it has been buried in the history books and, and not acknowledged is also intentional. And in fact, the same tactics were used in New Zealand, Australia, Canada. All of these countries have acknowledged, apologized, or reconciled in some way, except for the United States. Over time, the brutality of boarding schools started to surface. And after a 1928 report detailed the horrific conditions at some schools, many began to close. In the 1960s, indigenous activism rose alongside the civil rights movement. And by the 1970s, that activism forced more schools to shut down. The government handed over control of the remaining boarding schools to tribes to be run in partnership with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. But just as the boarding school era started fading, another assimilation project took shape, adoption. The main goal of this pilot project was to stimulate the adoption of American Indian children to primarily non-Indian adoptive homes. They claimed it was to promote the adoption of the forgotten child, but it was essentially a continuation of the boarding school assimilation tactics. And the strategy came with a financial advantage for the government too. Adoption was cheaper than running boarding schools. But first, adoption officials had to sell white America on the idea of adopting Native American children. Feature stories like this one in Good Housekeeping marketed them to white families. They were described as unwanted and adoption gave them a chance at new lives. In the end, their media campaign worked. White families wanted Indian adoption. But the problem was, many of these children were not orphans that nobody wanted. They were kids often ripped apart from families that wanted to keep them. You still will hear stories today of people, you know, my age, older, saying, I remember as a child, um, the social worker was coming and people would hide their children. On reservations, social workers used catch-all phrases like child neglect or unfit parenting as evidence for removal. But their criteria was often questionable. Some accounts describe children being taken away for living with too many family members in the same household. An extended family is a big thing for Native people. And that means being judged for being in a house that's overcrowded. So it's always whiteness is the standard for success. And everything else is judged by that standard. By the 1960s, about one in four Native children were living apart from their families. The official Indian Adoption Project placed 395 Native American children into mostly white homes, but it was just one of many in an era of Native American adoptions. Other state agencies and private religious organizations began increasingly making placements for Native American children too. My mother giving me up was a white person telling her if she didn't, she would never see her other kids again. In one of the documents I have, it's addressed to my biological father, Victor Fox. 
that he was trying to look us up to get a hold of us. But Hennepin County wrote, Daniel and Douglas are adapting very well in their new family. This was totally, um, it was a false statement. When you're adopted, you know you're missing something. Um, I think I've likened it to having like, when someone has like a 500 piece puzzle and they have all the pieces to make this pretty picture except one. My adoptive mother was not well verbally, physically, and sexually, and, and spiritually abusive. So by the, by the time I was 14, I started drinking. 15, drugs were added, and I became an addict to numb. I didn't realize I was numbing pain. I tried suicide, tried slicing my wrist one time. Children were taken and believed like I believed for a long time that there was something wrong with me versus something wrong with the system. The Indian Adoption Project was considered a success by the people who set it in motion. Officials claimed, generally speaking, we believe the Indian people have accepted the adoption of their children by Caucasian families and have been pleased to learn the protection afforded these children. But the truth was unsettling. These hearings on Indian children's welfare is now in session. Well, I was pregnant with Bobby and the welfare kept coming over there and asking me if I'd give him up for adoption. Before, you, before he was even born? Yeah. They picked up my children and placed them in a foster home. And uh, I think that they were abused in a foster home. Four years after Native people organized in this Senate hearing, Congress passed the Indian Child Welfare Act, known as ICWA. It gives tribes a place at the table in court. States would be required to provide services to families to prevent removal of an Indian child. And in case removal was necessary, they would have to try to keep the child with extended family or another Native American family. Without our relatives, we cease to exist. So with Native people, part of our wealth is in our family. It's in who we're connected to. But the legacy of family separation in Native communities has been difficult to fully undo. Today, Native American children are four times more likely to be placed in foster care than white children, even when their families have similar presenting problems. In these cases, ICWA is often the best legal protection they have, and it's been under attack repeatedly. A young girl ripped from her foster family because of the Indian Children Welfare Act. White adoptive families intent on keeping Native American children have tried to do away with the act, and they're often backed by conservative organizations. The Indian Child Welfare Act was dealt a blow earlier this month. The subject of a lawsuit issued on Tuesday by the Goldwater Institute arguing that preferences given to American Indian families to adopt Indian children is unconstitutional and discriminates based on race. It's, it's a way for these industries, um, these very powerful industries, to try to attack what Indian identity is. Wanting to overturn ICWA is connected to everything about who we are as a nation. So if we don't have any protections for our families, and if we don't have protections for our treaties, then we have um, no more Indians. We've been under attack, we're gonna continue to be under attack. And we have to keep, just keep fighting. It's in our DNA 
to survive. We are nations that pre-exist European contact and we are still here. They're saying, this is Body Talk with your host, Doc J, only on Inner Tribal Radio.
go hit you too. You throw my shot. Catch him. Hair there. Stories are told over and over in different ways. As I got to be a teenager, that's when my grandmother started teaching me more. I was always told that that was a sacred place. Out of all the sacred items that Lakota people have, that was the central, the most important item. We used the pipe stone to pray with, to vision quest with, and use it in ceremonies. They mined the pipe into quarry and pipe stone. They ventured many hundreds of miles to get back there to take the pipe and bring it back. There's only one place in the world where we can gather our red pipestone. And that's in the pipestone quarries located in southwestern Minnesota. My name is uh, Travis Erickson. I'm a fourth generation pipe maker in our family. Been doing it for 28 years. This quarry actually represents more than half of my life. To be able to come down here and quarry in the womb of Earth Mother, you know, that, that's really special. For many different tribes, our very beginnings come from this place, Pipestone. The people the white man calls Sue tell just one of many creation stories. Travis? Oh, you're in the movie? Yes, I am. Oh, then you are famous. <laughs> <laughs> Waiting for the armored truck. Yeah. Uh -huh. I've, got, um, I've got about 34 years of carving time now. And wow. I am a fourth generation pipe maker in our family. Wow. And I've been digging the pipe stone rocks for close to 40 years now. Wow. So it's, it's the second hardest stone? Quartzite is. Quartzite? Yep. Quartzite is the pipe stone rock. We have to remove the quartzite to get to the pipe stone rock. Right.
You're doing a turtle? Yeah. Looks like that. Hopefully it'll look similar to this one or these guys when I'm done. It takes a couple hours to do one. I'll bet. Hour and a half of thing. Really get on it.
peaceful place.
Noel Grayson is a culture keeper. His knowledge and hunting skills run deep. Thankfully for us, it's his job to share that knowledge with the rest of the world. And for that, we are grateful. I don't shoot a bow because I like archery. I started out shooting a bow because I like to eat. I like to hunt. You know, I'm an opportunistic hunter. If I go hunting and go out and say, oh, I see a quail, you know, if that's what your nestling uh, he gives me to eat for that day, that's what I'm gonna eat, you know. It's an old, it's an old Cherokee thing, you know, Native American, I guess. My name's Noel Grayson. I'm a bow maker. Okay, I've been making bows since I was a little child, starting out with just a stick and a string. I grew up here in Tahlequah. I was actually born just west of here on a place called Stickross Mountain. Grew up by the river from the time I was about five or six years old. There was tons of cane, there's tons of flint, you know, and that was my toys when I was growing up, just rocks and sticks. See, my brothers always took me hunting and fishing, something I've always done. But uh, my brothers eventually, you know, they just quit making bows and arrows and went on with, you know, being teenagers. I never quit. I just kept trying to uh, make them, just kept playing with them. We're at the Cherokee Heritage Center, and we're, we're in Dillagua right now. Dillagua is a village of recreation of a Cherokee village based off of the 1700s, early 1700s, and we try to say 1710, okay? But it's a living history village. We try to get people out here who know what they're doing and know their stuff, you know, demonstrate and show people this is what we did I teach flint napping to the kids, okay? And I'm teaching them in the most basic way that I can because they're children. They only got their attention for a second. So I sit there and say, you can hit it with a rock, hit it with another rock, hit it with an antler. The main thing is angles, okay? And there's gotta be something there to take off. And when I teach adults, I tell them, don't let it get complicated. You're making a stone tool. All you're doing is carving a rock by flaking it. So if you wanna learn how to do it, learn how to flake. Put it right where you want it, and then you hit the antler itself, and you see how that removes the flake. But when I see somebody who has an interest in it, all you got to do is keep that spark going, right? And it's going to build up later. It's a responsibility, you know. I'm a recognized master in doing this stuff, but I still ask people, you know. If I see somebody, I'll ask them, hey, how do you do that? You know, how do you do it? because it may open up a different avenue, something that I haven't even thought of yet. Scott Rackliffe, I learned a lot off him. He was an old Cherokee guy that worked out here, and he told me one time, we were sitting around talking, he was, he was a real interesting man. He told me one time, he said, you watch what I do. He said, because one of these days, you gotta do it. You gotta be the one who passes it on and teach it. And I just, I just, I just kinda went, okay. You know, okay, you know, I listened to him. I didn't actually know that I would end up out here doing it. That's my dad. When I was young, my dad showed me how to make a stone tool. He showed me percussion. But when I asked him about a bow, he didn't show me. He told me. I said, Daddy, how do you actually make a bow? He said, follow one growth ring, get the size and the shape of it, make sure the limbs bend evenly. 
When I make a bow, I'm trying to make every inch of it bend from right here to right here so each piece of it is bending evenly. Uh, Cherokee, you got, who speaks Cherokee? Understands a little bit of it. Who's ever heard Katuki? Mm. And what's it mean? Uh, working together. Uh-huh, Katuki. Every inch of that bow is working together with the other side, right? You understand that? Now, I know you guys have been on the job where somebody's fluffing off, you know, not doing their fair share of the work. It makes it harder on everybody else. But when everybody works together, it's a lot easier. Look, I want every inch of it bending so that it works together, Katuki. Everything's life around us, no matter what, you know. When I go cut wood, I talk to that tree, I talk, I mean, you know, people think I'm nutty, you know, maybe because a little bit, you know, but I'll sit there and tell it what I want and what I'm gonna do with it, you know. Because I haven't cut wood, bow wood in a long time, simply because we have a younger generation coming up behind us and I don't want them to sit there and have to struggle to find the wood that it takes. Same way with hunting, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't over hunt, you know, which is what we did in the 1700s when we started hunting for a, skins to trade with the Europeans. We almost took the deer population and decimated it back in the southeast. It's made a it's made a comeback, but they were really disrespecting those animals back then. I think we paid a price for it. But respecting animals like that, you took that animal's life, you should use every piece of it. And we were good at that back in the day. Now what I have is sinew, which is a ligament and tendon. Now I've actually stripped this one down. You can let this stuff dry out and it'll peel apart just like thread. You know, we were excellent at using every part of an animal. Apologize to the animal, ask forgiveness, but you also give thanks for it. Now you take that skin, you make a hide out of it, you know, make leather out of it, make clothing out of it to warm yourself. You're gonna use that animal's brain because it has a fine oil in it. So you can make tools out of the bones. You're gonna eat the meat, you're gonna take sinew and you can use that to sew with. You can tie arrows on it, you can tie feathers on an arrow with it, everything with the sinew. You see it nowadays, you see people throwing deers out, back straps missing, you know, the horns cut off, the rest of the deer's laying there. Somebody could have used that meat. You know, somebody could have ate it, somebody would have been happy to get it. But we need to teach this younger generation uh, not just to hunt, but the respect of that animal. Anymore, when I was young, I'd eat a lot. You know, I'd go out hunting, you know, anything, you know. But I'm just not hungry like that anymore. I don't want to take something's life to extend my own. I can look at it for the beauty of it nowadays if I see it out in the woods, you know, mushrooms, anything. I used to think I had to eat everything I seen that was edible. You shoot a bow like this, I mean, there is a way to aim it. My brothers taught me how to aim it. You just look down that arrow, you know, line everything up, right? Line the string up with the arrow, everything else is about elevation, you know, judging distance. Take that animal quick. You owe it to them, right? You owe that animal the best shot you can give it. There's one right over there. Far side, you see the fence line? Straight across. Let's see what we can do about educating this little guy. Ooh. <laughs> I think I dusted his butt a little bit. Leave some dirt on him. I share knowledge because knowledge. Back in the day, we didn't place a value on money, on gold, on silver. We had all that stuff back in the Southeast. 
It was just too soft of a metal for us to use. But what we did treasure, what was a treasure to us was the knowledge. That knowledge got passed down. Nowadays, uh, we place that value on material needs. But having knowledge like this when I was growing up, that's the kind of knowledge I sought. Somewhere along the line, some little kid's gonna say, yeah, he showed me how to do this. You know, I know how to do this because he kept it alive.
Funding for Indian Pride is provided by the Seminole Tribe of Florida, the Forest County Potawatomi Tribe, National City, the Otto Bremer Foundation, and the members of Prairie Public. On this episode of Indian Pride, we hope to dispel many Indian myths with the real truth, receive a lesson on how to protect the child with a circle, and tap our toes with some contemporary dancers and jiggers. I'm Jeannie K. Randall, and welcome to Indian Pride. Within our global society, myths can divide countries and their people from others. This is even true in our own backyards. Indian Pride meets the challenges of dispelling some of these myths as they relate to diversity of American Indians. The biggest myth in Indian country that I probably get asked a lot is if my grandma was the princess. Of course we're not all Pocahontas. Who's to say Pocahontas was even a princess? She was just another girl in the tribe, just like any one of us would have been. So that's one of the biggest myths I'd like to dispel. And the fact that not all Indians live in teepees. I know John Wayne really highlighted that a lot, which is completely untrue. I mean, half the Indians they had in their tribe weren't even Plains Indians that didn't live in teepees. They're just pretending they were. His movies are a little wrong as far as history goes. That's like one of the biggest myths, I'd have to say. The biggest truth is, is that yeah, we are all very sacred. If there is one truth about all Indian people, they are spiritual people, they're sacred people. They pray for everything they do. They pray before they go on a trip. They pray for their food. They pray for everything. That is a big truth to us, is that we are sacred people. We're spiritual. Somebody mentioned that, that we were these poor Indians, and it was primarily the social workers, and they met well and they did a lot for us. But they used to say, all oh, you poor Indians, we kind of looked around at each other and say, well, what do you mean by that? I got a chiki that I live in. I got a fire going with food on, you know, on the fire. I've got fruit that I can pick off from a tree that's either growing in a while or go kill a deer or something to that effect. I'm living good. I've got clothing on my back. If I need other things, I can go down to the store and, and maybe barter a little bit, sell some of the things that I've got or wrestle an alligator, entertain the tourists a little bit, what more do I need? It was later on in life that we began to understand what they were talking about when they said, you poor Indians. We never felt that we were poor. You know, we were always rich. Maybe we were cash poor, you know, but we were rich in, in, in our life. One of the biggest myths, I believe, is that there's not very many Indians in California, or they didn't know that there was any California Indians because there's such an influx of the Great Plains, the Sioux, the Arapaho, and Navajo from the Southwest. And they are so surprised when they hear that there's over 126 recognized tribes in the state of California. The governor of California only cited 69 tribes, but there is well over 100 federally recognized tribes in the state of California. They are not large land base. I think the Hoopa tribe is 12 square miles, and that's the only really huge land base we have. 
Most of the other reservations are smaller. Some federally recognized tribes have zero land. They're federally recognized without land, no land base. I, th I think a lot of the, the myth that I have to fight is that the Native American is given something for free or that their social economic problems is all there and if they just leave the reservation, everything would be great. Those are the myths that we have to fight. It's an uphill climb and up until we turn around and level it out in an in a equal playing field, we will always be our worst enemy. Whether it's the noble red warrior or the mysterious medicine man, Americans have long had a curious love affair with American Indians. What are the myths and what are the truths? Today's program will help you clarify some of these mysteries. President Fawn Sharp, an enrolled member of the Quinault Tribe of Washington State, will provide her insights into this always interesting topic. Welcome to Indian Pride. Thank you. Well, why don't we start off by talking a little bit about some of the myths that we hear about in Indian country. So I'm gonna give you a myth and you tell me the truth. Okay. Can you do that? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Upon European contact, Native peoples were viewed as very primitive. That is a myth. The truth is that Native people were highly evolved societies over centuries and Indian people had a strong connection uh, spiritually, intellectually, emotionally with all living things. So um, when you, when we talk about, um, you know, the psychology of that myth, uh, we often hear the name Stephen Covey and the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, uh, where he describes three stages of development. Uh, why don't you share his uh, philosophy and, and how that applies to this myth? Okay, Stephen Covey espoused a paradigm of human maturity, and it's similar to Abraham Maslow, the psychologist of the 1950s, and they talked about mature individuals being those who could see beyond self. Uh, uh, Abraham Maslow referred to that as a self-actualized individual. Stephen Covey describes those three levels of maturity, and he talks about interdependence being that uh, Indian people uh, when we view interdependence, we see it beyond the Stephen Covey uh, philosophy of interdependence in relation to other humans. We see a strong interdependence and connection to all living things, whether that be the earth, the rivers, the water, trees, uh, and animals. And so our sense of interdependence had not only uh, something that went beyond human beings to all living things, but it also had a very spiritual uh, humility in, in approaching other things. And so when, when you look at Indian people and their sense of a mature individual and a mature society, it went levels beyond modern day thinking. Um, and so how did that apply then in modern day thinking? In, in modern day thinking, uh, both Stephen Covey and Abraham Maslow uh, talk about when individuals can see beyond themselves, they can be productive members of society. While Indian people view it not only as being productive members of society in relation to other people, but the sense of wholeness, the sense of connectedness to the universe. I think Chief Seattle had an excellent quote. And his quote was that whatever befalls upon the earth befalls upon the son of the earth. Man did not weave the web of life. He is merely a strand of it. Whatever he does to the web, he does to himself. 
all things are bound together, all things connect. And I think the wisdom that is in Chief Seattle's quote is one that if we understood 400, 500 years ago and that, that philosophy was carried forward, we would not see things like global warming today. Those things that we do to the earth, when we put oneself beyond uh, the wholeness, the wholeness being the animals and the environment and the air, that when we are selfish as a society, it's the destruction, it's the beginning of leading to the destruction of society. But when we have a strong sense of connection, emotional, cognitive, and spiritual, then we can live in a society where there is an abundance. And it's, it's no wonder that upon European contact, this continent was filled with an abundance of land, an abundance of uh, resources. Uh, the salmon, the buffalo, waters were clean and pristine. And we had it right 500 years ago. And we were very mature in a highly, uh, highly evolved society. So we were not primitive. We were not primitive. <laughs> okay, well, myth number two. Indians were giving land and fishing and hunting rights. That is another myth. Indian people were not given those things. Indian people reserved those privileges and rights in treaties. Explain how that applies today. Sure. We have uh, reserved rights for fishing, reserved rights for hunting, and those are things that were exercised by our ancestors for centuries. Uh, my grandparents fished for a living. I grew up on the waters of the Quinault River uh, fishing with my grandparents. Um, in your constitution, uh, there's specific articles that reflect this, uh, how the Quinaults were affected by this, correct? Correct. And those are Articles 2 and Articles 3 of our uh, treaty with the United States. Um, so myth number three, Indians do not pay taxes. That is a myth. We certainly do pay taxes. I've filed a, a personal income tax return every year. When I go to shop at the local mall, I, I pay retail sales tax and I pay property taxes on my home. Uh, do Indian casinos play, uh, pay taxes, federal no. taxes? No, they do not. And what about, uh, do dates pay taxes on state lotteries? No, they do not. And, and that is the myth about uh, Indian tribes. Governments collect taxes, governments do not pay taxes. And if it's okay for the state uh, to operate a lottery and not pay a tax, it should be just as fine for a tribe to not have that tax obligation. Um, on, on the Quinault Reservation, do you uh, collect taxes uh, be beyond um, the federal government uh, for income tax purposes? Uh, no, we do not. So there's no tax base on the, on the reservation? We do not collect income taxes. We do have a hotel occupancy tax. And I firmly believe that uh, tribes need to look to generating sources of revenue like state government does, like federal, the federal government does. Right now we're put in a position where we have to try to generate profits with commercial enterprises. But to me, uh, governments and nations should be able to establish a source of revenue through a system of taxation. And so we're looking at Quinault of expanding our governmental taxing authority, and, and that would require that uh, you know we have uh, we pay taxes. Uh, so that w would that be part of your constitution, or you'd have to ratify your constitution, or how would that work? That would work by adopting tax codes, uh, which we have done, and public hearing with our, our general membership. What about retail tax? We do pay retail sales tax off the reservation. Uh, we do not on the reservation, and 
those are the sort of taxes that uh, when it comes to applying taxes within the reservation boundaries, uh, tribes do, in large part do not collect taxes, but the states, however, do collect a large portion of taxes on the economic activities within reservation boundaries. So it, it seems counterintuitive that the state would have the, the powers and authorities to collect taxes, but the tribes effectively are preempted out of that taxing authority. So when the states collect taxes, do, does any of that money come back to the, your tribe? No, it does not. Uh, and that is something at Quinault this year, we are looking at a, a piece of legislation that would uh, allow us to take a timber severance tax. Right now, the state of Washington collects 9%. All the timber that's harvested on fee lands, the state collects that portion. At Quinault, we get zero. So it, it seems to, to me that if we want to try to generate revenues to support other services to reduce federal dependency and be truly independent, uh, that we need to go in that direction. Well, that's great. Um, myth number four, most Indians have substandard education and therefore are not prepared for college. That again is a myth. We have uh, college graduates in record numbers. I recall when I entered law school, I was told that in the 1970s, there were only 50 lawyers country, countrywide, nationwide. And now, I, I, last I was told we had over 2,000 uh, Indian attorneys. Now, that was when I graduated from law school. I would imagine uh, in the last 11 years, that number has grown. Um, so what, what plans do you have at the Quinault Tribe to continue uh, moving the kids forward in the area of education? We're going to utilize what's called an Individual Development Account, IDAs. Those are intended to teach young people how to save money and how to uh, put money aside for higher education. And I'm working with a number of universities. Uh, I've asked each department director and manager to identify internship opportunities within the nation in all areas, whether it be law enforcement, natural resources. And so that as we create those internship opportunities, we could utilize uh, federal dollars to leverage those with an IDA account. Kids could earn money, they could be prepared for college, and they could break down those barriers. Well, fun. Our time's ran out. I, I just hate to end this great topic, but you've done such a great job for us in Indian country for such a young person. Thank you for all your help. Thank you. Back in the history of the Blackfeet Nation, uh, we had everything was in circular. It was Mother Earth, the sun, the teepee, the ceremonies, all in a circle. And if you think of in the center of that circle when a child is born into a family, that that's the essence, the middle of the circle. And then the mother is the next circle, and then the grandmother and the aunties, the uncles, the grandfathers, and then on the outer circle is the father. And um, if anybody or anything wants to get to that Indian child, they have to go through this whole regiment of people because our role, the women, the Blackfeet women's role was of nurturing the child and they were the, the commanding force <laughs> of what happened to the child. And then the grandmother, you'd have to go through the grandmother, then the aunties, uncles, grandparents. And the father's role, and again, we're talking about um, husband and wife and child and extended family. Uh, the male role was of protecting the family. And today, you know, I still see that. But the importance 
is that um, our children were really protected and uh, raised that way like they uh, grew up um, like they're seven years old they began to wander out in this outer circle and uh, learning from all of the extended family but when they became adolescent it was really the grandfather and the father's turn to begin to show them their role especially the boys and um, they they understood this whole uh, circle a uh, circle of life really that um, they had an important role and they seen how the women were so strong in that and how the men were their role and if it's a boy growing up he would know if it's a girl growing up she would know and today um, in recent years I worked at the Hart Butte School and I also worked in the Browning School District here on the reservation and we have our adolescents who everybody clucks their tongue at them that they're so rowdy and you know they have the uh, uh, foul language and all this and if, if the um, child got out of uh, control or was really making a monkey out of himself or herself I would tell them I am going to the phone and I am going to call your grandmother and have her come up here because I knew that circle that their grandmother would set them straight and they'd say oh no 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 don't you call my grandma <laughs> or don't you call my grandpa <laughs> <You know? laughs> I knew that that was a, a family a Blackfeet value that I could use in uh, correcting these children but showing them the way you know and I am their grandmother I am their auntie I am their mother I am their sister if it's a boy or uh, I'm represented and I can tell them those things you know because that's how the order of the Blackfeet child is you know the uh, raising the child and those are the values that you can use when we want to make our tribe proud we introduce our children I'm very pleased and honored to welcome to Indian Pride two young groups of dancers the extraordinary Turtle Mountain Métis dancers and Lefty's Little Steppers, all enrolled members of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians in North Dakota. Break a leg, kids.
like to thank all of my special guests for sharing their gifts and talents with us today. And we invite you to join us next time as we present another great showcase of Indian pride. Whenever you get a chance, do something special for a child. Bye-bye for now. Funding for Indian Pride is provided by the Seminole Tribe of Florida, the Forest County Potawatomi Tribe, National City, the Otto Bremer Foundation, and the members of Prairie Public. Fresh up off that rugged road, it's my time away from shows. Lifting off up in my zone, turn my shit to airplane mode. Fresh up off that rugged road, it's my time away from shows. Lifting off up in my zone, turn my shit to airplane mode. Way up in the clouds, I stay afloat. Prolific rhymes, they mix with smoke. Shows in 60 days, ticket stubs to clicks and plays. Sold out rooms, they give me that pay. Now replay every day. No time for what the hater gon' say. Cause I got demons to slay. And if not, I keep them at bay. Keep them away from where my family stay. Watch that, baby. Uh, you want me to stay? I need to go. On the road to secure the bag. Lifestyle that they wish they had. All they see are the stage and the lights. They can't see the struggle every night. All killer, no filler. Rest of power to Mac Miller. Off that rugged road, it's my time away from shows. Lifting off up in my zone, turn my shit to airplane mode. Fresh up off that rugged road, it's my time away from shows. Lifting off up in my zone, turn my shit to airplane mode. Way up in the clouds, I stay afloat. Prolific rhymes, they mix with Can I fuck with you? This my time away from food. It's a grimy road, my dude. So my vibe might be rude. Sometimes I need some news. So I do me, you do you. Fuck you, mean. I'm so cool, I'm so chill. Yeah. Burn up, burn up, burn up on that fire till that blunt gets killed. Killed. I go deep up in the hills. Fresh up off that rugged road. It's my time away from shows. Lifting off up in my zone. Turn my shit to airplane mode. That rugged road, it's my time away from shows. Lifting off up in my zone, turn my shit to airplane mode. Way up in the clouds, I stay afloat. Prolific rhymes, they mix with smoke.
Christmas Day.